Hello and welcome to Talking Fußball Extra, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. My name is Nick Biltog and right about now you might be thinking, hang on, shouldn't it be time for Talking Fußball Direct with Mr. Matt Herman? Well, it turns out that we have something else lined up for you. This time around you'll be hearing a chat that I'll have with book author and football journalist James Monty about his time in Ukraine and how the authors have been a crucial part of Ukraine. Ukrainian society ever since Maidan in 2014. Welcome back to Talking Football, James. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure. Yeah, great to have you back. And now, Vladimir Putin, he talked about the Ukrainian regime being run by neo-Nazis on drugs. It's become pretty much apparent that he wants some sort of regime change or change of direction for the country. Yeah. But, you know, when that rhetoric was first published by Western media outlets, or at least outlets here in Norway, uh, where I live... A lot of the reaction was like, what a strange thing to say. Yeah. That doesn't sound reasonable at all. And then I thought to myself, hang on, I think I've read that mentioned somewhere before. Because you mentioned it in your book when you were in Ukraine that Russia indeed had started a propaganda campaign a long time ago about this sort of thing, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, going back, I mean, the reason why I, I was in Ukraine, for the, actually, it, it began before 1312. It was with when I was researching the Billionaires Club, which is about, you know, the super rich taking over football. I mean, mainly English football, because you can't obviously, the super rich have to find, as Bayern Munich fans and ultras are finding out, I find other sneakier ways to invest their money into German football. But in terms of kind of buying football clubs as kind of tools for which, whatever it is, whether it's reputation laundering or whatever, like English football is, is the place to do it. And, but those tentacles kind of stretch all across the world. And one of them, one of the things I was really interested in was the book starts outside I basically go on a kleptocracy tour, which is, it was, it's kind of run like by kind of the right hand man of Alexei Navalny, who's a political exile in London, still an exile in London, and still, you know, heavily involved in the kind of anti corruption foundation that, that uh, Navalny set up. And they had this kleptocracy tour, and I went on it. And it's basically, you go on a bus tour of all the kind of properties around London that these, you know, like Russian government ministers who that earn 40,000 euros a year have bought, which are like, you know, like 10 million pound mansions and stuff. It was incredible because it starts, it starts at like the deputy prime minister, like Igor Shuvalov's house. He's got like a mega apartment in like, a, I think it's an ex MI6 building, you know, somehow he's got that. But then, you know, you go to then, then next it's kind of Abramovich. You go past his, I think he bought the Russian embassy and turned it into like one of these iceberg palaces, which has 10 floors underneath, you know, because kind of built, they, they can't build up. So they build down Usmanov. So I'm sure we passed one of his places. And then one of them was Rina Akhmatov, who's, you know, he had two apartments in, I think it's one Hyde Park, which at the time was the kind of um, most expensive real estate project in the world. And so eventually I kind of kind of followed all those kind of like, oh, these, where did that money come from? And, you know, you go back to Ukraine and Rina Akhmatov is, was at the time Ukraine's richest man from Donetsk, bought and ran Shakhtar Donetsk as a kind of, you know, kind of, kind of like a mini Chelsea in a way. And what was fascinating was that the war had just begun and I'd gone to, you know, do the story of, of Rina Akhmatov and him basically doing this mini Chelsea in, in Eastern Ukraine. And the first thing I saw when I got there was loads of, because the club had to play in Kiev, they couldn't play in Donetsk, and loads of Shakhtar Ultras, the Shakhtar Ultras turned up, and they were rabidly pro-Ukrainian. 
And this was something that I'd kind of, I wasn't expecting because, you know, usually the further east you go, the more kind of Russian, I mean, I'm, people say like Russian speakers, but everybody speaks Russian in Ukraine. But in terms of kind of people who voted party of the regions were pro Yanukovych, definitely veered more towards kind of a, a pro-Russian worldview than anything else. And you'd have expected these guys who certainly, you know, would have been on the right, far right of, of the political spectrum to be pro-Russian, right? But they weren't. They were pro-Ukrainian. And what we found is that pretty much most of the ultra groups in, in Eastern, even from Crimea, were, were kind of pro-Ukrainian. And, and I thought, that's, that's a really interesting... It didn't really fit in with that book about the Billionaires Club. I mentioned it, but I kind of kept... I, I remembered it. And one of the stories that came out of Maidan in 2014 as well was how how the ultras were like absolutely integral to to winning that battle. You know, that the, that you had this kind of uneasy kind of alliance between leftist or at least kind of kind of cosmopolitan, like pro-Europeans... And guys who were in the Okola footballer scene, which is like the arranged fighting scene in Eastern Europe, where they're pretty much the strongest, you know, country you can find. You know, so to me, and these, and all of these guys were ultra nationalists. You know, at, on the on the soft side of the spectrum, sometimes outright neo Nazis. And you know, it certainly wasn't. You know, there's, I think there was one leftist ultra group at Arsenal Kiev, and that was and that was about it. But it was pretty much on the right of the, of the political spectrum. And so, yeah, I was I was fascinated by this this dynamic about how I, I'd seen this a little bit in Egypt as well about how ultras as an organised group in civil society can kind of play a role in revolution and in and in you know in the aftermath of revolution as well. I mean, these are important spaces to organise, and they're usually these. This is an organised space, and that's quite uh, useful both for regimes sometimes, but also those who want to fight against regimes. And there was something similar happening in in Ukraine, and I could see it, and then. Uh, a lot of these guys end up going and fighting in Azov. And Azov, you know, uh, set up by Andrei Biletsky, he's uh, for out of Kharkiv, you know, I mean, absolute neo-Nazi who set up this uh, kind of militia and recruited 70% of the fighters from from the Akola footballer scene. So we're talking hooligan firms, ultra groups. And not only that, like a lot of the supply lines going to the front line as well were were coming through, were being organised on the terraces, especially in Western Ukraine. And then, so the people that weren't fighting were organising and sending supplies to the front line. And they become kind of an, you know, like a, even a lot of kind of liberal activists will tell you that they became this mythology about the kind of Ukrainian ultras, the kind of heroes of the revolution. And begrudgingly, we're like, well, yeah, okay, we don't agree with these guys, but they stood up and fought, you know, when, when and, and many cases died when it mattered. And so I went to Ukraine in, in uh, 2019 and I met one of the leaders of the Rodici, which is probably the one of the toughest firms in Europe, a guy called Sergei Filimanov. And I mean, he was going through kind of a transitional phase. Like he, he'd gone and fought, he, he was a, you know, ultra fighter then was involved in maidan then joined azov veteran injured in the war uh, injured in the i mean he he was part of the defense of mariupol which is where azov is based and and where it kind of earned most of its kind of mythological status and then had returned to kiev to basically become a they'd spotted him as a potential leader, political leader, and he'd become, you know, he was being groomed for power within the National Corps, which is the political party pretty much that Azov set up, like a 
far right political party. And so, yes, yeah, so I went and met him. And, you know, it was, it was kind of a fascinating kind of 10, actually I was in two weeks in, in Kiev at that time because he was obviously, he, he'd obviously started out as quite a kind of right wing, you know, you know, almost a fascist and had recalibrated his views and, you know, hadn't necessarily, I mean, some, like one of his best friends and right-hand man had a, had a swastika tattoo on his neck. So let's not, you know, <laughs> let's not get like, he wasn't, he wasn't, it wasn't quite like um, American history X uh, when, you know, Norton comes out of prison and, and, you know, ha, you know, tries to cut everything. I mean, th- this was, this was a process, but there was certainly some recognition that he wasn't the same person that, that, that he was. And he ends up falling out with Azov quite violently and sets up his own group called Honor, which is a kind of, you know, it was like an organization he set up with his friends that were organizing, what would you call them? Like kind of kind of revolution schools, I suppose, like kind of teaching people how to fight police and teaching activists how to, how basically how to fight back um, in a kind of uh, riot type situation and ends up in, they all end up in Hong Kong during the fight in there during the, when, when, <laughs> By the, before. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, they, so they end up there and they're obviously, you know, because they're anti-communists, right? So, you know, and of course the, the Hong Kong students are anti-communists too. But what happens there is that Russian state media then catches hold of the idea that this guy's there. And of course, they're Nazis to them. And they want to push this idea of of Ukrainian Nazism. And it's something that they've been pushing really hard since 2014 because they can't admit the truth that what that was was a... It wasn't a CIA-funded colour revolution or a fascist takeover. It was a grassroots legitimate rejection of Russian kind of involvement in their affairs, creating a kind of kleptocratic state model that, that they have in Russia. And so this is the line, even though fascism isn't... Uh, I'd say fascism is more of a problem in France than it is in, in Ukraine. I mean no one gets above 5% in the national elections. You don't have fascist politicians particularly. But, the, you know, street politics, it's quite visible and they've been pushing this. I mean, you, you also have the fact that during various periods of, of Ukrainian state, is it kind of Ukrainian nationalism, that you've, you have figures like Stepan Bandera, who's, you know, who's uh, had allied with the Nazis at one point And, I mean, you know, he did some pretty unpleasant things. I mean, implicated in kind of massacres of Jews and Poles as well. So they're trying to make that connection back to the Second World War, that Ukrainian nationalism, Ukrainian self-determination, Ukrainian statehood is is synonymous with fascism. And they started trying to do this with Filimanov and connecting him to it. So suddenly, I think I can't remember the name of the show, but I think it's on Channel One, like the main TV channel and like, nightly news. And then suddenly I was watching it and there he is. He's like public enemy number one this is the proof of all the of all the nazis that are running around and we've kind of kept in touch because he's he's a he's quite an interesting guy who has moved further and further away from the the original views that he had you know he says now he's a patriot and he's a nationalist i know that in a lot of cases people who you know the, the far right are very good at that corridor of uncertainty they want to attract supporters but they know that the word nazi or fascist kind of turns people off so they try to you know, make make them look like reasonable nationalists. We're just patriots, right? And he has a very similar thing. But there, there was genuinely, 
the kind of activism that he was involved in. Like he became a street activist that was involved in fighting corruption and also fighting against, you know, activists who were attacked, like liberal activists who, who were attacked or who'd been murdered in many cases and campaigning for justice for them. And I think he was a bit different. That's, that was the impression I got. I know some people might think I was being a bit naive about that and I've heard that and it's legitimate criticism, but I, I go with my hunch sometimes. But for me, I mean, when I read about him in your book, I was sort of like thinking that it's rather difficult to determine whether you like him or not because, I mean, his moral compass is off in certain ways, it's fair to say. But in other ways... I'm not, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure. I mean, his moral compass... Because this is the thing. His moral compass isn't off. I mean, it's, it's on, mm. right? Day to day, his bread and butter activism at the time, some of it, you know... Definitely was, you know, was quite violent. I mean, kind of violently uh, apprehending foreign fighters who'd fought in uh, for the Russians. Because, of course, there are fascists. Because the other thing about this as well is until the recent breakout of the war, they have, their foreign fighters have flocked to both sides. But they've often been from the far right, but aligned in different ways. So one of the interesting things is that you'd see a lot, you'd see Croatian fighters for instance, turning up on the Ukrainian side because, you know, you have a, a, a Catholic, I mean, mainly Catholic country in, in, in Croatia, but there is, it's kind of an enemy of my enemy is my friend type situation because you have Serbs because of the Orthodox Brotherhood with the Russians who then fight like ultra-nationalist Serbs would fight on the other side. So you, it, it would be split in this way. So, you know, and then, you know, Filimanov was, I mean, there, there's one guy, a famous, uh, there's a famous incident where he he finds a Brazilian a guy who'd been fighting on the Russian side and he ta- he finds him and, and, you know, I mean, he roughs him up and takes him to the SBU headquarters as like a citizen's arrest. And I think the guy ends up getting like 20 years in prison. I mean, God knows where he is now because he prob- might probably escaped. But, you know, so, you know, this anti-corruption stuff, kind of fighting for activists, it wasn't obvious about stuff that was kind of completely kind of off the reservation, which a lot of other groups were doing, like be- like burning down Roma camps and stuff like that. And so it was more of a recalibration of his compass, I think. And that was the thing. So I genuinely, I, I genuinely couldn't work out whether it was real or not. Mm. And I think that's, and I'm quite, I've got quite a good bullshit detector. And if that's the case, I think that's either he's, he's a fucking genius or, you know, there is, there is something there that is not, you know, there's something there that is, you know, di- different or Hard to explain, or in this shade of grey, which which often is is where it is with life. And then, I mean, the thing is, I mean, even before we get to to the war, the funny thing is that he yeah he has like a new act after all this because he then gets cast in a movie. I don't know if I'd uh, I didn't write about this in the books. It happened afterwards, but no, there's a famous Ukrainian director who got arrested in Crimea and put in prison in Russia, and there was a big Hollywood campaign to have him released. I think Johnny Depp was involved. I think few other famous actors involved he gets released and then he he basically his first film when he comes out is a film set in ukraine kiev in the, i think it's set in kiev i haven't seen it yet but it's in um it's the early 90s in ukraine and it's a uh, you know the wild west of capitalism then it's called rhino and filimonov is cast in the lead role so he's now a film star <laughs> and he goes off and then suddenly because you know you follow him on, on instagram and message him occasionally and he's you know, a lot of countries don't let him in because of his connection to Azov and and his past activism. So often you'd see, 
you know, he's planned the trip to Mexico and you see then pictures of his of his wife in Mexico, but he's not. He's kind of like angrily tweeting in, or angrily kind of like posting back in Ukraine. But yeah, then suddenly, I, like you see a picture of him at like the Venice Film Festival and like that's where it made its debut. And then he won like Best Actor at the Stockholm Film Festival. Really? Yeah, so he's he's kind of a film star now. And then we were planning to go, because we've been talking about doing a TV series around 1312. So we were planning on going to Ukraine to kind of meet up with him and a few other ultra groups who kind of, there's obviously some kind of conflict coming, but I don't think anybody, I mean, very few people were were certain that apart, apart from American intelligence, but who believes them normally, you know, the, the idea that there, there would be a, a war there just seemed crazy. But we knew, I mean, I had from contacts on the ground that all these groups were training again. I mean, a lot of them never stopped training as well, but they were training for, for what they saw as the inevitable conflict, you know, Filimanov being one of them. And so we we're going to go there and try and, and meet up with them and, and, and see how it's going. But then the war started and now all of these guys, all of these groups, they're all now in militias as we speak, kind of dug in somewhere looking for, looking for Russians to engage with. So, I mean, it's almost a film in itself about his life. You know, it's, it's an incredible story. And I, and I do follow him on, on social media and occasionally he puts a message out to say he's alive. So that he's not been killed yet. But yeah, it's, it's a, you know, I mean, it's been two weeks now. And and one of the interesting things is, is seeing the, the groups, especially on Telegram, we can follow a lot of the really quite hardcore far-right kind of channels. And you can see a lot of, uh, hooligan groups across Europe sending supplies, sending men, training to, to, to go to go and fight. So this is something that actually hasn't been written much about. I mean, I haven't done it because I've been working on something else, but it's something that there is a story here about the fact that you have this international network of fans, uh, hooligans, ultras, which have almost all universally got behind Ukraine, which is interesting because usually politically a lot of them look towards Russia as, you know, the saviour of white Europe. And, but yeah, they've, they've wholeheartedly got behind Ukraine and in many cases are putting their lives on the line going and fighting for it. One thing you've mentioned at the start of our conversation was Maidan. That is basically where the Ukrainian uprising that threw Viktor Yanukovych out of office started. Viktor Yanukovych obviously was a guy who was rather friendly with the Russians and Vladimir Putin, and that was replaced with something else. Now, as you mentioned there, football ultras played a vital role during those protests. Can, can you describe how they did that? So speaking to kind of activists, what was... Clear. And, and this is this isn't just uh, something from Maidan. This is also something from Tahrir Square. Was that you know, popular protest can be a violent thing, and what often happens is that you you have a group of people who are peaceful, you know, uh, protesting with the best of intentions, but often they're up against a state that is willing to use incredible power to crush it. And that's obviously a complete mismatch unless there's huge numbers that can crush that. But when you have the police force, irregular police force, Titushki, these guys who are paid, 
you know, by kind of militias paid by the government to go and, and, and beat up protesters, snipers, you know, quasi-military groups as well, sometimes outright military groups. This is a fight that a lot of people can't win. And what was interesting is that, again, we, we use that phrase, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And there was a, a universal dislike across the political spectrum of, of Yanukovych and largely of the, it's, the connection to Russia was obviously, you know, a massive part of that. But it was also just the endemic corruption and the type of system that enriched a series of uh, oligarchs that held sway and held power with impunity throughout the country. And so these ultra groups also entered the fray in Maidan and you know, some of the most interesting activists I, I would speak to would say, you know, these were guys who would beat us up at LGBT marches, at, you know, any kind of leftist cause, because obviously they hate they hate the European Union. They hate um, they, they believe the European Union is kind of uh, trying to bring these uh, corrosive Western values to to their family loving societies, right, which include, you know, LGBT rights. And so they would be they would be hounded by these guys. But they found themselves on the same side because they had the same enemy. And once these guys got involved, it changed completely the complexion of what a fight there would look like because these, you know, weren't cerebral activist types. And not even, you know, I mean, even if you had kind of ultras who were involved in making TIFOs and day-to-day running of the of the fan stuff, you had the guys who were, you know, involved in the Ocala footballers team. And if you know anything about the Ocala footballer scene, which is essentially, I mean, there's really like, I mean, I'm sure you've spoken about this in, in, in other shows before, I probably spoke about it last time, but you have essentially kind of a, a network of illegal underground fight clubs across Europe, which are highly, highly organized, extremely violent, uh, where people train almost nothing to do with their football clubs. In some cases, I mean, especially in Ukraine, there's several groups that, that exist, even though the clubs have gone out of business and don't exist anymore. But the firm carries on fighting <laughs> under the under the flag of the club that doesn't exist. And a lot of these guys aren't even football fans, you know. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, and even Filimonov, you know, when I, when I drilled down to it, I mean, I went to watch Dinamo Kiev uh, Olympiakos in the Europa League. And he turns up and he was, he turns up, he brings his young son, he brings his wife and he, you know, he's, he's there to shake hands and say hello to a few people, but he's not a football fan. It's just, this is the scene that he found the home in. And it was, it, it was a gang, you know, that he found a home in. It just happened to be football, but he just wasn't a massive football fan. And, and actually that's quite a common thing that I'd, I'd come across with a lot of, um, a lot of ultra leaders is that, especially the guys who'd got to the top and, you know, at that point, they're so far removed from supporting a team that it's almost just about about keeping the group and keeping the benefits of having that group. So it was quite a common thing. I wasn't shocked to hear it that, you know, he couldn't name the starting 11 last game, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, and and so the Ocala footballer scene is just this incredible... And I, I went to one of the fights in Sweden, although it, it, the other side didn't turn up and it turned up into a bit of a riot. But when you meet these guys and you and you speak to them about what their lives look like, I mean, they prepare, you know, it's almost like a standing army that they rotate in and out. So they're always on duty just in case there's any trouble that needs to be called in for. Like another ultra group goes into their territory or, or visiting fans from an ultra group who aren't friends with theirs because of the network of, you know, friendships and 
enemies that, that crisscross all across Europe. And so, yeah, this, this, these people are trained in, you know, MMA, basically kind of very high level martial arts. And, you know, they're, they're ripped. A lot of the times, a lot of them, you know, I mean, there's no drug testing in sports. There's quite a lot of steroid use as well. But they are highly trained, extremely dangerous individuals to get on the wrong side of. So, you know, throwing in hundreds of those type of guys who know how to fight, and not only know how to fight, but also know how to fight the police every week, because, and this is why the book was called 1312, is that, you know, the credo was the one thing that I found that, that united ultra groups pretty much universally all across the world was this absolute hatred of authority, but particularly of the police. And so the police were the enemy because 1312 is the, the numerical alphabet code for uh, ACAB, all cops are bastards. And so you have a, a anti-police, highly trained, uh, motivated kind of militia almost of people who are all united in their hatred of the police and the government and perhaps even the people they're standing next to, but they hate the other people in front of them more. So when those battles started, they were at the front and there was, I mean, there's a, you know, there's like an, I remember having like an Philomanov explaining he ends up uh, finding refuge in the Canadian embassy after kind of like pushing back. They were chasing uh, a load of police officers and, and managed to find them, managed to trap them in, in a building. And he had, a, he had a old Russian grenade and considered using it, but it would have killed, you know, a dozen, half dozen people if he'd used it. And he didn't use it. So they ended up burning a, a bus and using that as a barricade. But talking to them, of course, they talk up, you know, their role in it. But also talking to activists who were like, yeah, these these guys were the difference. Without them, you know, perhaps the same outcome maybe would have happened. Who knows? But it certainly it gave muscle to you know, a, a protest movement that otherwise probably would have needed far greater numbers to overcome the kind of force that they were being shown. Well, as you mentioned, some of these ultras have also been to the Donbass and Luhansk regions that are the two parts of Ukraine that Vladimir Putin now has declared to be autonomous states. Now, what did these guys tell you about their experiences fighting with those pro-Russia militias? What were those wars like? Well, there's different stages in this. I mean, the first is Maidan. And then I went to Ukraine sh shortly after and, you know, saw this Dinamo Kiev versus Shakhtar Donetsk derby, which often, you know, is probably the biggest game in Ukrainian football. I mean, there's an absolute hatred between the two. And uh, was it Lechescu, the, the coach who was coach, the Romanian coach who was coach of uh, Shakhtar's network? Last time I checked, he was still at Kiev. But when he turned up at Kiev, at Dinamo, I mean, they, they were absolutely furious that this guy who who'd played for the Traitors was now, was uh, sorry, who'd coached for the Traitors played, he's almost 80. <laughs> but um, he's, uh, <laughs> but he, that he, that he'd come to, he'd come to Dinamo. They were absolutely uh, furious. Uh, but w what was interesting was that the Shakhtar Ultras I spoke to, and a couple of them did speak to me, and they were, I mean, this is, this is the, the perennial issue that I, you know, not the issue, the thing I have to overcome usually is, is first of all, getting them to speak to me because it's a notorious scene uh, and part of the game that is very, you know, obviously anti journalists are hated as much as the police are hated. But, you know, what was clear is that these guys were 
afterwards, I think, I can't remember how many, but hundreds of them didn't go back. Not a lot of them were in Donetsk at the time. They were in villages and towns that kind of surrounded that are still under Ukrainian control. But they'd all gone and volunteered for this new battalion that had been set up called the Azov Battalion, which, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, was set up by Andrei Beletsky and um, uh, under the under the kind of auspices of Arsen Avakov, the interior minister at the time who resigned last year. There was actually, I've tweeted about him yesterday because I, I heard that he'd, he... Had, he had a sort of message of sorts for the Russians, didn't he? Yeah, because I'd, I'd seen from some of the... I mean, this is a, this is the danger of the disinformation war, is that, you know, I'm very careful about what I tweet and what I what I retweet. And you, if it's a trusted source, then obviously, you know, that's that, that'd be enough usually. I mean, obviously, I do my own research, but in this case... It was about him being hit, like he'd been killed in shelling in Kharkiv because that's where he built his political power originally. Uh, and then, but then, quite soon afterwards, it found out that he he hadn't been killed, and he put out this big message saying that I'm ah, suckers, I'm in I'm in Kiev. But yeah, this guy was kind of responsible for this because one of the things that after Maidan, and it was clear that there'll be a Russian response, the Ukrainian military was in no fit state to fight. It'd been hollowed out partly because of corruption, but probably partly out of design as well. Some of the things that Putin's asking now in the current conflict is the idea of a neutral, demilitarized Ukraine and, you know, not having a standing army, not having any kind of uh, military that can combat it, any kind of aggression from Russia, obviously makes it a more pliant state. So when it came to like, okay, well, what's here at the military? What can we do? They had nothing. You know, like, you know, a lot of people going to the front line without boots, without the right clothing, you know, 40, 50 year old hunting rifles. I mean, they had nothing. And so these, these militias were being set up as a kind of a way of organizing forces that could, that could somehow counteract what was coming. I mean, first it was, you know, uh, Crimea, and then it was the, you know, de facto kind of annexation of, of uh, the Donetsk People's Republics and Luhansk People's Republics. But, the, but there's actually quite a stark contrast between those two, though, because when you see Crimea, you see the Russians rolling in with, you know, tanks and saying, hey, here we are, you're Russian now, and everybody is basically saying, okay, we're Russian. Yeah, but remember, it wasn't, it wasn't quite as, you know, the little green men, wasn't it? Mm. It was denied at first, and of course, then, then he laughed about it. You know, and this is this is this is the way that he got around it was that this wasn't this wasn't an invasion. You know, and then they had that kind of shoddy referendum. But the point was that, they, that that wouldn't have been enough, and it was about getting the land bridge to Russia via Mariupol. Mm. And I mentioned it at the start that one of the battles that Filimonov was involved in was in Mariupol, and what shocked the Russians was that they that this volunteer militia managed to not just you know fight back in Mariupol but actually managed to push the Russians out and and held it effectively and Azov have been there as a presence ever since and that was a huge thing in terms of building Biletsky and and Azov's kind of uh, credentials and also showing that this policy that Avakov could have followed was the right and legitimate one but then there was uh, they pushed on and there was far bigger losses coming down the road. And in one battle, I can't remember the name of the town that it happened in. It was a bit of a, I thought anything up to a thousand Ukrainian soldiers were killed in this battle. And Filimonov was lucky to escape his life. And he, he, he kind of explains in quite forensic detail 
what happened to him. They realised that there was a, there was supposed to be a, again a humanitarian corridor or, or an escape corridor that they, they, they'd agreed a, a ceasefire. They would back out, and then obviously they were shelled by the Russians. And when that happened, his uh, CO just said, you know, don't stop, don't stop, don't don't pick anybody up, just run. If some if if anyone falls, they falls, and he runs like across open open land being fired at and is some massive uh, explosion takes place next to him and he, it's not a direct hit and he's kind of knocked out he's knocked out and he's hallucinating and he thinks he's got no arms and legs and he thinks he's in world war two and he's being chased by nazis and he and he kind of he, he relays this kind of story which is kind of pretty horrific but yeah that that was the end of his war pretty much or it was it was the end of that war and then that was the start of his political career but you know ever since he's been back in kiev he, he's they've been training they've not been um resting on their laurels and you know part of this group honor there are other characters um, people who who know this issue there's a guy called malia who's a again somebody who he's got quite you know like nazi tattoos got a swastika on his neck he's been you know, I've been doing some quite advanced weapons training. Some of it funded by the EU. <laughs> so, yeah. Then, and then this, and then when the, this war started, you know, they, they've they've all gone out, and and as with you know modern warfare, you can kind of follow it on on Instagram and, and Telegram. Yeah, I mean, there was that picture of the Dynamo Kiev fans getting ready for war at, at the start well, that, of war. Did, did you spot that was any? Them. That was them. Yeah, that was them. He, he was there. He was. You can see on the left hand side. That's. Uh, Filimonov, uh, Malia's there on the right-hand side. A couple of other guys I met were there. This was, I mean, it wasn't all the Radici. There's others, like uh, I think it's Terra Family and a few other groups. That, there's, there's a couple of fighting firms there. So, yeah, you know, again, if you think about the evolution from 2014 to 2022, where you had guys who were just, you know, very organised fighting, very trained, very fit, and also organised in fighting the police on a local level you ne- most of these guys now have combat experience and kind of quite advanced weapons training and are now you know fighting the russian military and you know i i can't in the fog of war no one can know exactly what what's going on but i mean i, I did see one picture that he'd got hold of an end law so some some somehow his group are getting hold of like british anti-tank missiles as well so they're obviously, I think, pretty competent at what they're doing. Yeah, so you do follow these guys on Instagram and other social media. So what, what is this like following that war on social media and what, what are they posting? I mean, you know, slice of life stuff, I guess, but just in, in the forests of uh, central Ukraine. There's, there was one where someone uh, acts like was, was pre- like almost like detonated. It looked like he almost detonated the, the end law next to him. And they had had a little argument. It was it was kind of almost a comedy moment. Well, it could it was almost a very tragic moment. But I mean, the most interesting because I check in just just to make sure that he's alive. But the, the there is a the, the, the Telegram channels are the most interesting because those are the ones that are appealing for for supplies, for money, for manpower, and you get a better handle on the far wider story because that's just the story of one group. And there are thousands of these militias and how it's plugged into this Okola footballer arranged fighting stroke hooligan stroke ultra scene and how, and you know, we've seen already with TIFOs all around Europe, pretty much 
in favour or, or in support of Ukraine. And that has translated also into, in many cases, raising funds, collecting equipment, and people who are capable of doing it, kind of ultras and hooligans from these firms going and fighting alongside them as well. There was a there was a quite interesting picture of Bromby's um, ultras who who I'd actually met uh, in Sweden, and I mean that's that gave me kind of an insight into into the life of uh, a couple of these guys who were involved in the in the more regular fighting scene because you know they were training kind of six days a week. I mean I, I, they didn't seem to have jobs. I mean they were training and fighting, and, and even the Ukrainian guys. I mean they were fighting. I think it, when I broke it down, when they told me how many fights they were doing, I was like, that's like two fights a week. Like, and these are, these can be like 20 versus 20, 40 versus 40. People aren't walking, there's no referee to stop you, you know, when you get a cut over your eye and you can't see. I mean, like, most people are getting knocked out of these things, you know, so that's, that's a concussion risk, <laughs> I think, you know. At the least. I'm a nurse <laughs> and I agree with that assessment from a medical <laughs> point of view. Well, James, it's always interesting talking to you. Um, please tell our listeners where they can find your work and where they can find you on Twitter. Yeah, uh, on Twitter, uh, James Piot, uh, J-A-M-E-S-P-I-O-T-R. Um, and my, new, my current book is 1312, Among the Ultras, and that's that's out now in paperback. And my new book, revised edition of When Friday Comes, a book about football in the Middle East, with a with a kind of special focus on Qatar, is coming out with Ebri in August. I hope. I mean, I've just handed it in, so if they tell me it's shit, it won't be. But <laughs> if, if they like it, then then it's coming out in August. Excellent. Looking forward to that. This is all we had time for on this edition of Talking Foosball Extra. Hope you enjoyed it. My name is Nick Wilton. You can find me on Twitter at No Musings. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Talking Foosball. Stay tuned for the next episode of Talking Foosball Extra, which will be coming up your way in a couple of days' time. Until then, it is goodbye for now. <laughs>